Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. The term psalms uh, is the Hebrew word telahim, and it literally means praise. The Greek term psalm, as it's rendered, um, literally means songs of praise. And because of that, some people refer to the book of psalms as the Jewish hymnal. But honestly, it's a little bit different than what we would consider a hymnal, because about a third of the psalms are actually prayers, which is pretty interesting when you think about it. They're not just singing songs of praise, they are singing songs of prayer. So all of you kids out there, next time you're sitting around the dinner table and your father starts leading the dinner blessing, remind him of that fact that, and encourage him to perhaps try singing the dinner blessing. Don't do that to me though, girls. All the other kids out there can do that. So uh, the author of the Psalms, there's actually many authors, but the most common is probably David. Although Solomon, Asaph, sons of Korah, Ethan, um, Haman, and even Moses are authors of Psalms. And it's an important thing to note that even though a name is associated with a Psalm, because a lot of times you'll see like Psalm 19, it'll say a Psalm of David. That preposition that says of is really tricky in Hebrew because that term of can mean belonging to, like they possess it, they wrote it, it is theirs, or it can also mean about or for. And so it's, it's kind of one of those tricky little prepositional uh, parts of speech that's really uh, sometimes difficult to know uh, exactly what it's referring to. I think by and large, when it says Psalm of David, it probably is written by David. But again, just wanted to know there's a little bit more nuance to that term when we do read that. Um, one of the interesting tidbits uh, from the Psalms and the authors, there's a man named Asaph who's one of the authors of Psalms, and uh, there's also a group named Asaph, and they're split apart by many, many years. One was pre-exile, one Asaph, the original, was uh, one of King uh, David's chief musicians, but then there was Psalm 74, I think that was written by a group, in the book of Ezra refers to a group called Asaph. I think they might have been one of the first bands in scripture, perhaps, that we know about. And so it's kind of just really fun to see uh, some of these different terms and groups and people worshiping God together and knowing that the people have been doing this for not just centuries, but millennials. Uh, praising and worshiping God because his name is above every other name and is worthy to be praised. There is no other religion, there is no other faith tradition that can claim to be worshiping the God who has created the whole universe for as long as the God of the Bible, as long as we can. So it is a privilege and a pleasure for us to be part of worship to this day and carrying on uh, that legacy of, of faith and praise from our fathers and their fathers before them. So the time frame for the book of Psalms can uh, literally span, I think, a 900 years or so, especially if we look at Moses actually writing the psalm the, of Moses and uh, David writing the psalm of David and going into the exile and, and such. So about 900-year period. Um, the Psalms, this is true of all Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is. But the Psalms are unique in that most, in the rest of Scripture, the Word of God is God speaking to His people. 
Psalms are kind of flipping that around a little bit. It's it's people talking to God. Have you ever thought about that? It's really neat. It's really neat. It's one of the, it's very unique in that way. And because of that, the Psalms capture a lot of the human emotion that come from living in a fallen world, from the lows and desperation that is a result of our personal sin and the sin and effects of sin of everyone else around us, to the highs of joy and the praise that overflow from a heart of thankfulness for God's goodness, his love, his provision, and his salvation. And I think that's why the Psalms resonate so deeply with many Christians. It's because you can really sense the depth of the human struggle. And yet at the same time, you can hear the profound comfort and the, the hope and the assurance that we can have in Yahweh God. And so for the next few months, you might notice that Pastor Preston and myself are, uh, are you know, continue to come back to the book of Psalms. I want you to know that that is intentional because we want to camp out in the Psalms for a while and hopefully unpack some of the beauty and uh, the truths that lie within some of the different genres of the Psalms. And so today it seemed appropriate that we start with Psalm 1. The author is not listed, but judging by the similarities in, to the book of Proverbs, some uh, speculate that it might have been Solomon, although many people reference it as a Psalm of David. Um, but we are uncertain because it's not listed. But the genre of this psalm is, can be considered a psalm of Torah. Torah referring to the Word of God as a psalm about God's Word. Uh, similar to Psalm 19, which we'll reference later today, and also Psalm 119. But it also could be considered a psalm of wisdom. You'll notice uh, there's a lot of wisdom packed into the psalm as we read it today. And so make sure you're, you're listening for that, for that wisdom. One of my favorites, as I was studying uh, to, to bring the psalm to you today... Uh, I, one of my favorite prefaces of that was written by Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan preacher back in the 1600s. And he says, this psalm carries blessedness in its frontispiece. Okay, I know, it uses some weird language in the 1600s. Saying at the very beginning, it's talking about blessedness. It starts with it. It's the very front of the psalm. It begins where all hope to end. It may well be a, a Christ, called a Christian's guide, for it discovers the quicksands where the wicked sink down in perdition. And that's in verse 1. And then it talks about the firm ground on which the saints tread to glory. I love that term, or that, that way of phrasing it in verse 2. The text is the epitome and bravery of true religion. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So let's prepare our hearts to receive God's word Let's bow and pray together. Father, I thank you for this opportunity, for this blessing that every single one of us has this morning to uh, enter into your courts, Lord, to hear your voice, to hear your words of truth, your words meant to bless those who hear them. God, may we, we be receptive hearers. May we be humble and recognize that we are not worthy for you to even consider us, and yet, God, you love us, and you have given us your word to give us life, to give us blessing, to give us happiness, and may we praise you and be a light and a testimony in this world as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I hope I bought you enough time to have found Psalm 1, so please look in your Bible, and you can read it along with me. Psalm 1. Blessed 
is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, and the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In my uh, years of youth ministry, a lot of bus trips, a lot of van trips, a lot of traveling opportunities, and, and without fail, just about every trip, there's a point in the trip where everybody's just out of control, it's loud, it's going crazy, and it's really hard when you're driving and you're tired to know what to do to kind of curb everyone, and so I can tell these little tips now. I can give away my, uh, my, some of my techniques now that I'm not in youth ministry anymore, but uh, to help get people's attention, and I would tell this riddle. I'd be like, all right, guys, quiet down, be quiet, listen to this riddle. i tell them this riddle. I'd say, so you're going down a road, and you're on this path, and this path splits. There's a fork in the road. One of those paths leads to heaven, and one of those paths lead to hell. You have to take one of those paths. have to take one of them. But you don't know which is which. You have to pick one, though. To help you choose, there's a set of twins, twin girls, no relation to my girls at all. You'll see why in a second. Those twins are identical in every sort of way, with the exception that one of them always tells the lie and the other always tells the truth. See why that's not you two? They both tell lies all the time. No, just kidding. <laughs> you have one question that you can ask the sisters to figure out with absolute certainty which direction to go. What is that question? Don't ask the teens in the youth group because I don't think any of them ever figured it out. The beauty of that question is it got everyone quieted down pretty quick. A lot of times the boys, because the boys thought they'd impress the girls by figuring it out, so they spent more time than they probably should have, and so you can see how my technique kind of worked. So this is a question, this, this riddle poses a question of logic, one that is difficult and most people won't really spend a lot of time trying to consider or figuring out. But imagine for a moment that your happiness is indeed at stake. Wouldn't you spend more time, perhaps all of your time, trying to figure out the answer to that question because you could not afford not to? Much like the wide and the narrow gates and the paths that Jesus talked about in Matthew 17, the wide path that leads to destruction, many are on it, on it, and the narrow path that leads to life and happiness and blessedness and very few that go on that path. Psalm 1 tells us about the two paths in which all mankind walk. And you need to know that your happiness is at stake. Not just your temporal happiness, but your eternal happiness. Verse 1 here in the psalm says, Blessed is the man 
Man, just to clarify, is a broad term for meaning mankind. Blessed is the person, the people. Blessed is mankind. This is not gender specific, just to be very clear. Blessed is the man. The term blessed comes from the Hebrew word uh, asher, means blessed or happy. That's why I keep saying happy. So it means happy. In Hebrew, it is a plural of intensity. So it's not like when you're like, hey, are you happy? And you're like, yeah, I'm happy. It's a plural of intensity. For those of you who didn't know that, what that means any more than I knew what it meant before I studied it, it means that you can translate this word blessed as, oh, how truly happy is the person. Or, oh, you're exclaiming, oh, the happiness of the person. This is not just, yes, I'm happy. This is Oh my goodness, come and look at the happiness. It is something to behold. It is something that is unique. It is something that is different. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. It is, this, is also, um, this term also stems from a verb meaning to go on or advance. And so if you're looking for a New Year's resolution that will help you grow and advance to the fullest measure of happiness... To the degree you can say, oh, how happy I am. This might be a psalm for you. In a season where we're busy making New Year's re resolutions that we will think will affect our happiness, maybe it would be good for us to take the time and stop and consider what God says will bring you happiness. In some ways, I think this is God's New Year's resolution for you and me to be happy and to be blessed. And I'm very thankful that God did not give us a riddle in order to figure it out. So before telling us the source of this blessedness, this happiness, the psalmist starts by listing three things that prevent, that impede, or squelch and squash true happiness. This is the water on the cat of happiness. This is how not to be blessed. This is how not to be happy. This is what actually robs you and steals happiness from you. Three things. In a similar way that our joy and our blessedness, our happiness is supposed to be advancing and growing, it seems that each one of these three things uh, that the psalmist points to while parallel and saying something very similar, it seems like they are also building. They're growing in intensity and advancing, though not towards happiness, but towards unhappiness or unblessedness. The psalmist talks about walking and then standing and then sitting. The psalmist talks about finding counsel and walking in the way of and the life of and talking about sitting down in a seat. He talks about the wicked and then the sinners and then the scoffers. And so basically, we, what we have is this image of a guy who is walking, and he seems to be looking around for direction. He's searching for meaning, for purpose, and he receives and accepts counsel from the multitude of people who are on that path with him. And we know the character of the majority of the people on that path, what kind of counsel they are giving, because they are wicked and sinful. And so he's looking around for wisdom and purpose and meaning. He's looking for counsel and he's receiving it. And now that he has received that counsel, he's standing. He's established himself in the way of sinners. 
living life just like everyone else and fellowshipping with sinners. And after a while living this way, he is now seated. He is committed to his pride and his arrogance. He would rather stay where he is at, even if it means his destruction, than exhibit the humility that it would take to say that he may just have built his life on a lie. Condemnation is at his doorstep. So let's look at these three things. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The term walk means to enter into, to exercise, or to practice. That's what he's talking about. And when he refers to counsel of the ungodly, this term ungodly or wicked, as it's sometimes translated, means loose or out of joint. So just imagine that your arm's loose and out of, jo- out of joint, okay? Imagine that. It kind of hurts. It's kind of painful. Kind of miserable, isn't it? Wicked, loose, out of joint. Now, this is a question of where do you get your wisdom from? Now, imagine if I want to learn how to play, a ba- play baseball, throw a ball, and I go up to someone whose arm is loose or out of joint, and I say, hey, will you teach me how to throw a ball? Do you think I'm going to get good information back from this disjointed person? He's going to like say something like, well, first off, you know, you're going to have to put the ball in your hand. And because he's, never, he's disjointed, might never have thrown a ball for reals, he might have go like this. You go like that. That's how you throw a ball. Because he's disjointed. Maybe if he's really smart, he'd be like, well, first you've got to hold your shoulder in place. And then you've got to go like this. You know, he's disjointed. It's out of place. That is what it's like to be wicked or ungodly. It's not aligned correctly. And because of that, you might do the best you can, but it's still messed up. That's what wicked, ungodly counsel will do for you. That is what wicked, ungodly counsel will do. And so it's a question of where do you get your wisdom from? What is the source of truth? And this matters because what you believe, what you think, matters what you do. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. As you think, so you are. So truth matters. The source of your truth matters. And the world is so confused on what truth is. It says that everyone gets to pick their own truth. And in a sense, they're right. You do. But that doesn't make you right. I want to know what is true, whether I pick it or not. Because that's what truth is. Just think back to all the different times that you personally, as an individual, have been wrong. Do you want to base your truth on you? I hope not. Neither do I want a democratic truth, a truth that is determined by the majority. Think of all the times throughout history that everyone was wrong. Whether it's slavery, whether it's flat earth, whether it's thinking that cats are gods, we all know that is not true, by the way. I want a truth that supersedes the individual and the collective. I want a a truth that is true though every man be a liar. A truth that stands alone. And there is that truth. 
and absolute truth. Blessed is the person who does not base their life on the world's wisdom, but finds this truth. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says this. It says, where is the one who is wise? Point to him. Somebody point him out to me. I would like to know. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jeremiah 8, 7 through 9 says, Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove and the swallow and the crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say we are wise? We are wise. And the law of the Lord is with it. People are invoking the wisdom and the law of the Lord in these declarations of their own humanly wisdom. Do you hear that? They'll even invoke God's word for their authority and the, to, to give their, their words credence and their wisdom to get traction with it. But he says, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The, the wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Uh, and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? What wisdom is in them? Worldly wisdom is not just out there. This is so crucial that we recognize and understand. Worldly wisdom is within the church walls. Within the, not just the building, it's within the people. Paul warns us throughout the New Testament in his letters, watch out for the wolves amongst you. What are they doing? They're giving you a false gospel. They're giving you false teachings. They're leading you away with things that sound good and tickle ears that sound like wisdom and is not. Which is the reason Colossians 2.8 says, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. We have to be on our guard at all times. That is why the wide path is wide. There's lots of reasons, but this is one. It's because the vast majority of the people who are on this path are more than willing to give you directions to a place they don't know where they're going. And they're wanting to give it to anyone who will listen. In fact, they will scorn you if you do not listen. So you must know that a majority of the wisdom that you will receive from those around you will not reflect God's wisdom. Do you hear that? A majority of the wisdom that you will receive in life, chances are, will not be godly wisdom. That's why Paul tells Colossians, you have to be on your guard. You cannot be taken captive. Captive! You are a slave to these non-truths and these lies. Be on your guard. How are you discerning? How do you discern? How do you be on your guard? And it's very simple. You hold it up to Scripture. You hold it up to God's Word. Because it tells us in Scripture that God's Word is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in the righteousness, so that the man or woman of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has given you everything you need to be a godly person, live a godly life. And he has given that to you in Scripture. There is nothing that you need, absolutely have to have, that is outside of Scripture. Nothing. 
God has given you everything that you need that pertains to a life of godliness. There is nothing else that anyone else can write that will add to and give you more than what God wants you to have that, is, that prepares you better for what God wants you to do in life. The Bible is God's word of wisdom to us. And so when people give you their counsel, even claiming to be Christians, don't just take that on face value. Say, ask the question, show me in Scripture. Show me in God's Word. Show me in the context that that Scripture passage was written in. Show me. Hold it up to the light of God's Word. Paul tells us, test the spirits. Test the spirits. So blessed is the man who does not stand, or blessed is the man who does not base their life on the world's wisdom. The second warning, the second uh, non-blessing, essentially, is uh, blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. Now, this doesn't mean that sinners are walking down the road and you're jumping out in front of them and you're getting like stamped on or anything like that. When you stand in the way of sinners, what this passage is, what this uh, phrase is doing is, it's kind of you have to kind of compare it to in the book of Acts when you have Christians. Before Christians were called Christians, uh, in the book of Acts, I think it was chapter 9, says that Acts was going to go out and find the people of the way. The way. That's what they were referring to Christians as. People of the way. The way is people, that's, the way is how you do life. That is how you think. That is how you think. And that is what you are doing. And so when you stand in the way of sinners, it means you are now, to stand literally means to remain, to continue and persist. You are now established, and it also means becoming a servant of. So you are now established and become a servant of the way, the lifestyle of a sinner. You've taken the counsel of, you have walked and listened to the counsel of, you are now established and planted in the way of a sinner. Bad counsel will have bad results. And so this seems to possibly be a position that ha- of a person who has stopped searching, stopped being open to godly wisdom, and has become comfortable where they are at. They do not simply seek counsel from the ungodly, but they now surround themselves with the ungodly in fellowship and as friends. I'm not saying you can't have friends who are not Christians or, or you know, are sinners. That's not what I'm saying at all. God calls us to Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus was also God. We have to be cautious because 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us, do not be mis- misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And when we start listening to the counsel of the people that are around us that are not speaking godly counsel to us, we will quickly find ourselves ensnared and enslaved, planted in the folly that sin brings. Paul says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. Stop standing in the way of sinners. You know, the, the term sinners literally means miss the mark. That's what sin is, missing the mark. And so when we take counsel from a disjointed person, how can you expect to hit the mark? Can't. So the third thing that uh, the psalmist tells us is, blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of the scoffer. 
Sit means to be set, to dwell, to have one's abode. This is now your new home. The next word really scared me, though. To sit means to marry. You are now committed. You're set in your ways. Blessed is a man who does not sit, who is not married to, who has not created one's home with the scoffer. This is a person who's so comfortable with sin that they're married to it. And they don't like anyone who does not like their wife. You don't like my wisdom. You don't like what I'm selling. I don't like you. I don't like anything about you and anything you say. That's what a scoffer is like. Proverbs 21-24 gives us a definition of the scoffer. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, the haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. I'm, he- I'm right, and there's nothing you can do to change my mind. Adam Clark, theologian, says, the scoffer he has set down, he is utterly confirmed in impiety and makes a mock at sin. His conscience is seared, and he, he is a believer in all unbelief. Proverbs 24.9 says, The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is abomination to mankind. Not just God, but to mankind. Scoffer is an abomination. Proverbs 15.12, A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He does not like to be told that he is wrong. He will not go to the wise. Again, he's set in his ways. Proverbs 9.8 says, don't even rebuke a scoffer, for he will hate you. A scoffer trusts only in himself. He's removed himself from all help and wisdom and correction. He's limited truth to his own understanding. And I think in the process, he becomes the most pitiable, miserable, and unhappy of creatures. As a result, the scoffer is the person whose sole purpose in life his sole happiness is to dare tear down everyone else's life just to make him feel better about the shambles his own life is in. And that's why Proverbs 19.21 says, condemnation is ready for scoffers. So these are the three things that Psalm 1 warns us against that are contrary to, that prevent blessing and happiness in our lives. Walking in, the counsel of the God, uh, walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Undiscerning acceptance and practice of ungodly counsel. Standing in the way of sinners. Aligning yourself with the way of sinners. No holiness. Nothing in your attitude or actions that sets you apart from the world. Sitting in the seat of the scornful. The prideful arrogance that entrenches us into our thinking. That we have it all figured out. We are unapproachable. We will not listen to correction. At home in our misery, having a pity party and wishing everyone else would join in. You want to be robbed of blessing and happiness? These are top three reasons how to do that. Blessed and happy is the man who does not walk in this path. But unhappy is the man or the woman who does. Think God's given us a heads up? Yes. I know these past few years have been very difficult, and I don't expect every Christian to walk around with a fake smile plastered on their face. But I do believe that God wants, He desires His children to be happy 
and bless. He even commands us to, and he says, rejoice always. So if the general attitude and state of your life is one of unhappiness and misery, I would just simply challenge you to do something most most worldly philosophers and the worldly wisdom will not tell you to do is stop and consider and look at yourself. Look at the source of your counsel. Question who you are listening to and hold it up to the light of God's word. Look at the quality of the friends that you are finding fellowship from. What are they stirring you up towards? Towards sin or towards love and good works? So we talked about the water on the cat of happiness. Let's get to the gasoline that stokes the fire of happiness. Psalm uh, 1 and verses 2 through 3, if you'll read uh, in your Bibles there, I'll read through verses 2 and 3 real quick. This is where blessing comes from. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. An Anglican commentator uh, by the name of John Trapp said this. He said, the psalmist... (laughs) Again, he talks really weird, so forgive me. The psalmist saith more to the point about true happiness in this short psalm than any one of the philosophers or all of them put together. They did but beat the bush, but God here hath put the bird into our hand. All the philosophers in the world talking about how to get happiness are just beating the bush. No bird arises. And here God has put the bird in our hand directly. He has told us the source of blessedness and happiness. Delight in the law of the Lord. It feels kind of wrong when someone tells you to delight in something, doesn't it? Kind of rubs you the wrong way. Makes you want to sometimes do the opposite. You can't be told to delight. Delight is something that is, has to be real and authentic and legitimately bring you joy and happiness and blessedness. And so when the psalmist is saying to to, uh, the, the blessed is a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, he is saying that because that is true of his own life, in his own experience. He has tasted and has seen that the Lord is good. He's not saying this as in like a father trying to get his kids to eat vegetables and being like, yeah, it stinks, but you have to do it if you want to be happy and strong. That's not what he is saying. We're going to see that in just a second. Delight is a willing pleasure. It's a willing pleasure and delight to the degree that it consumes him day and night. That's how much this psalmist is talking about delighting in the law of the Lord. It's not just what you're doing in the daytime when you're walking, standing, and sitting. It's so much more than that. This is day and night. This is like all life itself. Remember, if, if there's that one question that needs to be answered in, court, in order for you to have happiness, don't you think it's 
worth spending time on? And the psalmist is saying, yes, it's worth spending day and night on and meditating on it, reading it about it, thinking about it. That's how much it's worth. That's the extent this person that has this desire, like a young man who desires his first love, he is pursuing her day and night. That is what the psalmist is describing, this life-giving, blessed truth of Scripture, this happiness that it offers. It is worth everything in our life to pursue and to find and to attain. So how does God's law bring us to light? We're going to go to Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 real quick here. And you can turn there if you'd like. This is a Psalm of David. And he's talking, he's telling you why he delights in the law of the Lord. He says, he starts off in verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's interesting because this passage here in Psalm 19 mirrors the conversation that Saul, uh, that David had with his son Solomon on his deathbed. Very similar. And so when you read this, kind of imagine a righteous man about to pass, giving his last words of wisdom and of life to the person that he loves perhaps most. Psalm 19, 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Solomon, the law of the Lord is perfect. Son, listen to this. It revives your soul. Are you weary and heavy laden? Go to God's word. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Are you struggling, Solomon? You lack wisdom? Where do you go? God's word. God is the source of wisdom. Solomon found that, didn't he? The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Are you downcast? God's word. Rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightens the eyes. Do you see darkness everywhere else in life? Are you overcome with that darkness and the despair that it causes? God's word shows us that that purity, that light. It enlightens our eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Rules, righteous rules. How many people rejoice in rules? Yay, rules. No one does. But Saul, David is telling them, everyone, he's saying, God's word is so just and pure and merciful and amazing. I rejoice even in his rules. It says, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Why do we spend our time trying to dig up all these other treasures? All these other things that the world tells us is worth dedicating our life to. Getting a good job, it's not bad, but is it worth dedicating your life to? Making a lot of money, great, but is it worth dedicating your life to? All your time, night and day. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter than honey. This is not talking about vegetables for your kids to eat. This is sweeter than honey and drippings on the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. Warned, your servant is warned. There is value in this warning. And in keeping them, there is great reward. When I was a, a, I'm a southerner, transplanted up north, and as I moved up north to Chicago and Wisconsin and now Michigan here, people were warned to me about the winters. They're cold. They're brutal. 
They're tough. They're long. You got to be prepared. And I was scared. I didn't. I was not looking forward to winters up north. I'm not scared of winters up north in Michigan any longer because I was warned and I took that warning to heart. Do you know what I did? This is kind of embarrassing. You might think I might be a little obsessive and compulsive about this issue being a southerner. Just remember I'm a southerner coming up north to Michigan. So I was thinking, moving my family you know, over to Michigan, we were already in Wisconsin, but I was thinking, what's going to happen in the wintertime if we lose power? And so I started, like, I started planning. You should see the number of rigid batteries I have for flashlights all over my house. I've got like 20 rigid batteries for flashlights. I go on around to all the different garage sales that I like to go around. I started buying every like kerosene heater I could find. I've got like three or four of them. If you run out of power and don't have heat over the winter, let me know. Because I've got a lot of these little heaters sitting out in my garage. Never used one of them yet, but they're there. If power goes out, I'm ready. Not only that, I went and got a pellet stove. I put it down in my basement. That pellet stove is going like all the time. I'm ready to go. My propane tank is like on this constant fill up. So it never like runs out at all. That happened to me once. Learned my lesson, got to pay for it. Propane is on refill constantly. So I'm constantly got propane. I constantly got kerosene. I've even got like attachments for my propane, my little propane tank for my, for my um, grill. I've got attachments to hook those up to heaters also. So we are not going to go without heat. We are not going to go, you know, we are not going to freeze in our home from a lack of heat. In fact, we might burn down, if anything, right, girls, from, from all that stuff. It's like I was warned, and I took that warning seriously, and I went, went from a position of being concerned, some might be said, obsessively afraid and controlled by, might be partially true, to a place of where I am not at all concerned. In fact, I'm saying, bring it on. Let that storm come. Except I don't want to snow blow, but that's not a big deal when it comes with storms. We've got fuel for heat. We've got food to eat. We've got a generator for even electricity and keeping everything going. We are happy and we are set because we saw the warning, we heeded it, and now we can rest at peace and knowing that we are going to endure the storm. In this psalm, it tells us that judgment is coming tells us that God's wrath is going to be poured out on sin, and I rejoice in that because I am tired of sin. I hate sin. I despise sin. I hate it within myself. I hate it when I see it in my kids. I hate it when I see it in the church. I desire for sin to be destroyed. I do not desire for those that God has created to be destroyed. God doesn't either. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to him and have eternal life. That is what God desires. And he's giving you a warning. He's given me a warning. So that even in knowing that the storm is coming, we don't have to be unsettled or afraid. Psalm 1-4, it says, it's talking about the, blessed, the blessedness of the righteous who are planted like a tree. And it says, the wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff in the wind that gets driven away. The imagery is that of threshing wheat, the grain on the ground, and beating it. It's getting beaten, 
feel like that as a Christian sometimes, don't you? Getting beaten. They get thrown up in the air. The weighty grain, fruit, the valuable part, is heavy, has weight, has substance, comes down, and yet the wind blows away from the blows away. And the wicked are like that chaff that gets blown away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. There's not a disjointed leg for the wicked to stand on in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The sinners, the wicked, have chosen their seat, the seat of the scoffer. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. No greater thing can be said about a man or a woman than that. Not who I know, but who knows me. That passage where, it says, where God says, depart from me for I never knew you. I want God to know me. I want him to know you. And yet here for the wicked, the Lord only knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. This passage, Psalm 1, has the gospel written all over it. For the one who takes the time to stop and to meditate day and night on it. Honestly, I was one of my frustrations this week. It's like I was like, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time for God's word. I'm out of time. Can't afford to be out of time when your blessedness and happiness relies on this truth. Desiring God's word, meditating on day and night. This passage is the gospel because it talks about the tree that was firmly planted. The imagery is that, the term planted actually, it means transplanted. So the imagery is that of God coming in and taking a tree that is in the desert, that does not have nourishment or life, that is not bearing fruit, and its leaves are withering and dying, and taking it and transplanting it over in this area that he is irrigated with water. The gardener is good, and he desires life for his people. He desires happiness for his people. He desires blessedness. God is the giver of every good gift, and there is only one place that we can find that, and that is not in the wisdom of the world, that it is is within the pages of Scripture, of his word, and that word points to Jesus and the cross and the sacrifice that God loved the world so much that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever lasting life like a tree whose leaf does not wither who bears its fruit in season so though i'm a sinner i'm a sinner saved by grace and though the wrath of god's judgment is going to be poured out of the way of sin and sinners alike god's word tells me that i am like a tree planted by the streams of water So this is a psalm of Torah. This is a psalm of wisdom. And I believe this is a psalm of blessing meant for every one of us.